On this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy, you will hear from Antonio Chacha as we discuss leadership strategy implications for the changing pharmacy landscape. Hi everyone and welcome to Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Weber, Chief Pharmacy Officer and Administrator of Pharmacy Services at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Powered by the Ohio State University Lachalet Leadership Program, this show is designed to keep current and aspiring health system pharmacy leaders up to date with issues, trends, and best practices affecting our profession. You can learn more about the Lachalet Leadership Program and the Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy MS in Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. That's go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. After three years as a pharmacy technician and two years of pre-pharmacy curriculum, Antonio diverted course, graduating from the Ohio State University in 2007 with dual degrees in communications and political science before moving into the world of association management. He rejoined the pharmacy world, heading up government affairs for the Ohio Pharmacists Association, a trade organization with a strong track record of advocating for drug pricing, transparency, and the growing role of the pharmacist. Antonio has spent years working to crack the drug pricing code through his consulting firm, Three Axis Advisors, and dedicates a substantial portion of his time educating the public about prescription drug prices through 46 Brooklyn Research, a nonprofit organization he co-founded in 2018. And he was recently named as the Senior Advisor for Disruptive Innovation and Practice Transformation for the American Pharmacists Association. Okay, let's jump into our interview with Antonio. Antonio, welcome to the show today. Great to be with you, Bob. So it's really an honor to have you here. And again, before you know, we started the show, I said I was going to patronize you a little bit, and I will patronize you a little bit. And I will say that a lot of pharmacists appreciate all the great work you've done. Uh, Scott Kinor and yourself have really changed uh, a lot of, of sort of the benefits of being a pharmacist in our community and even in our hospital in terms of the drug uh, pricing transparency work you've done. And I just want to let you know you're considered to be a hero for many of us. And again, I'm not patronizing you, but a lot of people see you as somebody who has essentially possibly saved their pharmacy. So uh, congratulations to you on your hard work and uh, the profession thanks you. Well, uh, since my dad and my sister are pharmacists, I, I figure the least I could do is make a better world for them to practice in. <laughs> right, right. And I did see that in your bio that you come from a family of pharmacy and that you moved away from pharmacy for a while uh, and then came back in, I guess, 2007, a little bit after 2007, I guess, from your bio. But uh, you're an Ohio State graduate. Go, go Buckeyes. And, uh, you know, I see that obviously joined OPA and then obviously your great work, you know, started from there. Um, so we did. T- I did talk a little bit about in your bio about your background, but I'm really curious, Antonio, there's uh, two companies that maybe you could just spend a few minutes talking to our group about, because our group is a group of health system pharmacy leaders 
who, who are very interested in uh, consulting firms and uh, public research firms and sort of how they can meet the needs of the profession. And you're involved in two, which is three access advisors and 46 Brooklyn Research. Can you tell us a little bit about both of those companies and what they do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I did not... Uh... I did not start out to be a consultant by any stretch, okay. <laughs> and uh, it was really by by matter of circumstance. Sure. Uh, during my time at the Ohio Pharmacists Association in 2016, uh, community pharmacists went from anecdotally complaining about reimbursements from pharmacy benefit managers to all of a sudden it was just a nonstop flood of complaints. Right, pharmacists across the state reporting to me that they had seen about a 60 to 80 percent cut in their gross margins uh, essentially overnight within the Medicaid program. Oh my gosh. When I went back to the State Department of Medicaid and asked them what did I miss, they said you didn't miss anything. Uh, nothing has changed and in fact we're paying more for prescription drugs than we ever have. And so you know I, I didn't pretend to know all about the industry but I knew enough to know that if pharmacists get cut and the end payer isn't saving money, something's being lost in the middle. And so uh, because we ultimately live in a world of proprietary information, pharmacists are quite limited with which they could share their, their reimbursement data sure, with data officials. Sure. So um, we began to start setting off on a journey to say, how can we tell this story very carefully? And so uh, a lot of people don't know this, but CMS... Uh, has two really important data sets available on their website. One is National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or NADAC, which wow. is the average prices that pharmacies pay to acquire drugs at the community setting. Then they have another data set called CMS State Drug Utilization Data, which is essentially a quarterly itemized receipt for what state Medicaid programs are being charged on a drug-by-drug drug basis, state-by-state. State. And so we were able to take those two data sets and actually merge them together. And voila, we saw that the prices of the drugs were going down, but the costs of the state were going up. Since we knew that pharmacies were getting cut, we knew that, again, somebody was taking something out of the middle. Right, right. To fast forward the tape, the data work that we did prompted the state of Ohio to do an audit, and that audit uncovered $244 million of PBM spread pricing, wow. being the spread pricing being the difference between what they pay the pharmacy and then what they report back to the state on the transaction, and thus ca capturing this hidden spread. Well, that opened up Pandora's box in Ohio and the Columbus Dispatch and Attorney General right. Dave Yost and Governor DeWine all jumped in. And that we knew was a big deal. Um, but what we didn't know was that how bad it was in other states. And so we decided at that moment, especially since we were getting some pushback from the pre previous administration in Ohio, we said, you know what, let's take all this data and let's publish it for free. And we had no intent other than let's educate the public. But what happened was, is when we launched, there was so much noise. We were inundated by law firms, private organizations, employers, and other state Medicaid programs who had no idea how, that this was going on. And so, again, I didn't know what I didn't know. But in, generally, in general, 
What I did know was that we've all been complaining about the cost of prescription drugs, and we've been really lazy in figuring out what's happening under the hood of that list price. So we launched 46 Brooklyn formally as a is a public education endeavor to take publicly available data and make it hopefully easier to understand and digest through data visualizations and research reports and give all of that away for free. Got it. Got it. Okay. Interesting. That's a really interesting concept. And so, you know, you've obviously gained a lot of national, uh, you know, news from this and, and it was shocking, you know, to me and I actually, did have some conversations with some of the folks you did the data uh, collection with and data analysis. It is very shocking. And uh, so, you know, obviously this led to, you know, really examining the state Medicaid program. And then are, are you satisfied with sort of where that, where the changes are going in terms of what Medicaid's doing at this point? Yeah. So, um, so, and, and this is a good way to kind of uh, explain what we, what I'm doing at my consulting firm, Three Axis Advisors. So we do for hire work now. We're working with those that are paying the bill and those that necessarily can't uh, make their data public. Well, what we're learning is that the problem with PBMs, and and, and it's not exclusive to PBMs, but the problem in the drug supply chain is that from top to bottom, we're all operating off of fake prices. You know, the AWP, you know, the sticker prices. And, and, you know, this is the same thing happens in health system. We have the sticker price and we have the real price. And the real price is different from payer to payer. We would prefer for that system not to exist. All of us would. But because of the way that we pay for healthcare through private insurers, we typically at the provider level are dealing with dictated reimbursements. And they're often based upon what we typically call lesser of methodologies, Hmm. meaning that you will be paid the lesser of whatever the hell we say is the PBM or the insurance company or the lesser of what you bill us. And so because of that, everybody has artificially high sticker prices because if they were to ever lower their prices, they're chopping their own profits right off, uh, right off the page. Sure. So because of that dynamic, we have to move to a system that is a little bit more trustworthy. And what complicates things on the PBM side is because PBMs own their own pharmacies, Now, the entity that was hired to control the transaction and create a more efficient transaction at the pharmacy level now has a conflict of interest because they own their own pharmacy. Exactly. It's an interesting dynamic there, isn't it? Absolutely. So, And for those in health system who may not necessarily live and breathe all that PBM mess today, it's important to note that, that, that PBMs are trying to move their way into the inpatient drug setting. And additionally, yeah. the insurers that they're affiliated with are also buying up physician practices at, a, at an alarming pace. So that, that's a very interesting. I'm really glad you said it because I think obviously health system pharmacy leaders are on this call and they're probably wondering, well, you know, I have these retail pharmacy networks and what does this all mean? But I think you're right. I think, you know, that they're, you know, given what you just said, you know, it's, it's segue into, OK, we've got some threats, I guess, or maybe even opportunities, I guess you could call them, on some things that you see and I, you see within health systems and within pharmacies. So what would you, if you were to like say one, two, and three, what are the three biggest threats? I mean, I can think of like Amazon, for example, and specialty pharmacy threat. 
for example. I can think of a variety of other things. But from your viewpoint and somebody who's actually dealt on the you know, first floor with this, and what, are, what are some of your thoughts about some threats? Well, number one would be the prospect of being price controlled by your own competitors, uh, which is exactly what we're seeing in the com community pharmacy space. And as we just said, it's bleeding over into the inpatient health system setting. So the second, you know, for those of you that work in specialty pharmacy, ambulatory care pharmacy, or just doing just general inpatient drugs, when the PBM starts setting the rates, um, and they also have their own competing interest in that same marketplace where they're setting rates, well, you're going to see the same things that we saw in the community space, which was disallowing certain medications to come from certain facilities. You'll see differential pricing from pharmacy to pharmacy where PBM-owned pharmacies are getting access to the most lucrative medications from a margin standpoint, and their competitor pharmacies are being stuck with all the ones that yield losses or slightly better. We're seeing that right now. I mean, I was in a meeting several days ago where several examples were brought up to me as to that's happening now. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it, we don't we don't live in a world where where pharmacists, it, it both inpatient and outpatient level, are in control of their. Uh, it's, this isn't like running a grocery store where you know if you're losing money on milk, you raise the price on, of milk. Uh, everything is being dictated back to you. And so when it's being dictated back to you, that's a troublesome enough spot to be in. It's worse. It's infinitely worse when it's dictated back to you by the biggest competitors in your industry. So let me just, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. This is a great conversation. But so I, I always talk to our residents about some of the things that they need to be really expert on in the future, particularly if they're going to be running pharmacy enterprises like the one we have here at Ohio State, is understanding the specialty pharmacy area. Would you agree? Would you agree that that's like a key area that a director of pharmacy needs to understand uh, about reimbursement, about limited distribution drugs, and, and all those things? Which would you agree? Oh, without question, uh, specialty drugs. If you're looking at it from the payer's perspective. Specialty drugs account for less than 1% of all the drug utilization in the marketplace, but it makes up over 30% of the spend and getting closer and closer to half. Yeah. So it is, you know, from a revenue standpoint, it's extremely important from you as a provider, but it also is infinitely important as you work to provide, you know, essentially a more efficient benefit back to the people, back to the patients and the employers that you're rendering services on behalf of. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole specialty area obviously has grown tremendously and there's actually uh, very uh, prominent health systems, Antonio, that are trying to get into that sort of weighted to, to develop specialty pharmacy operations. They're having one heck of a time trying to get in because of the very same thing you talked about. You've got insurance companies that own these pharmacies and they're really pushing their their, their medicines you know, medicine prescriptions to these pharmacies that they own. And uh, I, I that's just not good for patient care, right? I mean, just when, even if you think about the economics of it, what about from a patient care perspective, what's your thought? I mean, look, I have an inherent distrust. You know, we've got great working relationships with insurance companies, be clear over the years. But, you know, I want to see my provider because they're my provider. I don't want to go see my insurance company for care. Um and I want each one to do their functions and do them well. The second right. that you start crossing the streams, things start getting very, very weird. Uh, it doesn't mean that it, vertical integration in the space is an inherent evil. 
but it certainly means that you need a tremendous amount of accountability built into the system. And because of the opacity of pricing in, in, in healthcare, it requires a lot of trust. And our research has shown that trust has not been earned uh, and it's going to take a lot more to get it. Right. So just for purposes of explanation, because we have also have residents on this podcast that listen to our show. Uh, how do you describe vertical integration? Just describe that simply for the for the audience so that they clearly understand what it is. So vertical integration is when so we typically think of, uh, of mergers and acquisitions in all marketplaces it's horizontal ones. Do we want AT&T to merge with Time Warner because they will right. essentially form a quasi-monopoly? Um, and essentially, the consumer has a lack of choice. Vertical integration is just flipped the other way, where essentially a set, a one, inter, one uh, company starts buying up different layers of the supply chain. And gotcha. so in the pharmacy context, you might be saying, okay, the supply chain looks like a manufacturer sells to a wholesaler, sells to a pharmacy who's reimbursed by a PBM on behalf of an insurer. Those are all separate entities, each with their own roles that they have in that in that system. Well, things start getting very interesting when all of a sudden, let's say a manufacturer were to buy a wholesaler or a wholesaler were to buy a pharmacy or a PBM were to buy a pharmacy or any combination or it doesn't have to just be one or the other. It could be three or four layers all at once. And so because of the complexity of our drug supply chain, vertical integration creates inherent conflicts of interest because the end consumer isn't exposed to true market dynamics where they can competitively shop for goods and services based upon their, their estimation of the value proposition of those services. Got it. Got it. I see. So in essence, an insurance company, for example, would own a PBM. They would own a home health care. They would own you know, all sorts of healthcare entities that really normally do business on a horizontal basis with those companies, with that insurance company. And now it's it's basically part of the company or the broader structure, I guess. It's the easiest way, kind of way that I think about it, yeah. And different layers can provide different competitive advantages for the, for the, for the affiliated entity above or below. So when you get in the PBM space, obviously, if the PBM also owns their own pharmacy, their ability to set prices for their own pharmacies and their competitor pharmacies, as well as put their thumb on the scale to tell a patient where they can and can't get their medication, all of a sudden, you know, that's a big deal. And, and if they were small PBMs, this wouldn't matter. But the vertical integration combined with the high concentration where three companies make up 85 to 90 percent of the entire PBM marketplace well, now you have an, a really unfettered ability to pick winners and losers in a marketplace where your affiliated companies have it competing. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So hopefully the residents on the call understand what Antonio is saying. And it, just being aware and understanding those models is, is really critical. And I can't stress enough. I mean, I, as a pharmacy leader, you know, graduated many years ago, but had to maintain my skills over the years and understanding things like specialty pharmacy, drug pricing, uh, so, some of the you know, three, you know, things around CMS and 340B and all, all these regulations, folks have to keep updated on this because it's critical that as a pharmacy director, you cannot let uh, some of these things get ahead of you or else uh, your organization will suffer, your patients will suffer, and ultimately your department will as well. So, so speaking of big places and big companies, Amazon, 
I, you know, I'm always curious. I was very the main reason that prompted this podcast because, and, and I'm not kidding. When I when I saw that Amazon was coming out with a prescription delivery system, and it's called what Amazon Pharmacy or Pharmacy Amazon. I can't remember the name specific. I thought about you actually, and I thought I wonder what he would think about this, and I'm going to talk to him about it. So uh, I reached out to you. It was around the time actually we were doing the vaccinations, and I thought I'm reaching out to him, and, and so. Uh, again, I'm glad you're here on the show, but Amazon, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I w- when you hear Amazon entering into anything, you know, you're kind of like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> and it, it, what, it, what is Amazon? It is scale, it's efficiency, it's a ease of use from a consumer perspective. All right. things that should lend themselves very well to the healthcare space. Correct. Uh, so the the entry of Amazon, I think, is quite is quite interesting. Um, but I, I I when it, when they launched, I was like, okay, we're going to see something materially different here. I'm very excited to see what that is. Yes. And and when they launched, I actually went on their website to go, you know, kind of dummy it through and see what the process is from a user's perspective. And, and I I really can't overstate enough how disappointing it was. Oh, okay. I did not do that. And I'm glad that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I too thought, wow, you know, I actually thought it would be a good thing because I do really appreciate, really appreciate the convenience as well as I believe the quality that Amazon and their so com- company philosophy. But you say you were disappointed. Why? It was, a, it was, it, honestly, it was, it was, it was not necessarily, it wasn't like your prime, you know, in a lot, it, 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 because in prime, look, I see something, I buy something. Right, right. With with healthcare, it's not that easy. Um, we have a system in place that doesn't necessarily let you buy on site or on, on the spot. We have a system of prior authorizations and step therapy and insurance coverage. So the ease of integrating of health of healthcare integrating into an Amazon market because that's, that's we typically think okay, Amazon's going to integrate into the healthcare sector. No. Healthcare is integrating into Amazon, and it doesn't fit right now because it's overly complex. Does that, mean that, does that mean that Amazon can't figure it out? Absolutely not. Uh, certainly, they have the resources to do it. They could buy the entire state of Ohio tomorrow if they wanted. Um, but I do think that Amazon represents an interesting ability to come in and undercut the marketplace. But I will tell yeah. you that right now on its face, all I see is a mail order pharmacy with an Amazon logo. And certainly they can bring a good amount of disruption to mail order pharmacy. Not all mail order pharmacy is built the same, but in general, mail order pharmacy is clunky from a customer service ex- uh, experience. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm being generous with those terms. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I certainly agree. Amazon could come in and really fix that, right? Because Amazon specializes in ease of use and customer service. But the thing that I thought when when I heard of Amazon getting into the healthcare space, the one thing like we don't, it's not that we need other mail order companies. Certainly there's there, there more competition there, the better. But because from a patient standpoint, your mail order provider is really going to be dictated by your PBM, which owns the mail order company. We don't really have a competitive landscape from a patient to pick and choose which mail order company they want to use. So I question whether or not Amazon really has the ability to enter into that until they enter the pharmacy benefits space, which then really starts to excite me. Um, could Amazon come in 
and essentially pull the rug out from under all the fake prices that exist in the system and derive essentially a better value proposition back to the patient and the, uh, and the, and the payer? It's a, it's a fair question to be asked. But until they essentially vertically integrate as either a wholesale company or a PBM, I just see them as an outlier mail order pharmacy that most people won't use because the PBMs won't, that won't want them to be in network. Got it. Oh, got it. I see. I see. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And so there's not so there's they're not as much of a disruptor as you thought that they may be. Uh, is that sort of what you're thinking at this point, at least until they understand our business model better? And I do believe they have the skill, the expertise. I think they have the right corporate philosophy to, to provide the best service. And that someday that I agree that they probably will figure it out. Right. And so I agree. It's it's whole ho hum on the front end. Uh, but I will say, like, to me, Amazon's expertise is really they're a wholesale business and a mail order company for other products that you get. So one thing that we know, not that the wholesalers are the evil of, uh, of the system by any stretch, but the wholesalers are also represent their own la layer of opacity and dysfunction as well. And so Amazon, which is a wholesale business at heart, could really come in and, and I think, wipe all the legacy wholesalers right off the map. They already have the infrastructure in place to do those sorts of things. Certainly, certainly. Yes, I would absolutely agree with you. Again, given the mindset, their skill, their philosophy. Oh, no, absolutely. So speaking of disruption, disruptive innovation, you have this role at APHA as a senior advisor for uh, disruptive innovation and practice transformation. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So the, the new CEO of APHA, Scott Knorr, who was uh, previously chief pharmacy officer at Cleveland Clinic, I got to work a lot with in my time at the Pharmacists Association. And, and Scott, uh, I believe, has one of the greatest minds in pharmacy. Um, and, and so when he, because we had worked so closely on scope of practice issues, PBM issues, and payment for pharmacist services in, in our time in Ohio, that's, that's really his top charges at APHA. And so when he got the job, um, he tells me I was his first call. I'm, I'm gonna, he probably tells that to everybody, but... <laughs> Uh, I was probably one of his early calls where he said, you know, I need you. I, I, I need you to come uh, on board like we need to do this together. And I, I agreed, except I had this problem where I had started a, a really exciting consulting firm where right. um, we were where our interests were not necessarily misaligned with APHA or pharmacy interests. But that's not my mission. My mission is to fix a broken system. I believe pharmacy becomes a beneficiary when that's when the reshuffling of, of um, the incentives in uh, in the drug supply chain occurs. But I don't necessarily do this for pharmacy. I do it because I want a better aligned system. And, and it, additionally, if I was to come on board fully with APHA, they would that would be my sole charge. And a lot of the value that I think I could provide back to APHA, and any and really, you know, everyone from my dad working in, at, at a hospital to the patients that are being served is my ability to work with private payers and other organizations who have an, an, an additional interest in cleansing the, the, the dysfunction out of the system. So uh, Scott offered me a job. I told him no. Plus, I didn't want to move to D.C. So because um, D.C. is a nice place to visit. It's a horrible place to pay a mortgage. Um, right. But 
uh, I said, look, you know, Scott, like I, I want to help APHA recapture the podium. Um, I've always liked APHA, but I've, I, I never had the perception that they lived where the real issues were. Um, that, that doesn't mean that they weren't there. It was just my perception. Um, and I believe, much like we saw in Ohio, I feel that the Ohio Pharmacists Association does a great job speaking eloquently and effectively on behalf of all pharmacists. And there's there to me, there's an unequivocal, they're an unequivocal leader for the profession in the state. And nationally, that's just a little bit more muddy because you have a lot of fragmentation in different organizations. I believe strongly that APHA can and should reclaim the podium and speak for all pharmacists. I know Scott totally believes that as well. Yes, yes. yes. And I feel that as uh, I can help advise uh, APHA to not only you know do that, but then to also lead on the issues that are of most importance, which is prescription drug pricing, PBM reform. Uh, provider status and elevating the role of the pharmacist as a value-added component to the healthcare delivery team. So you just, uh, listeners to this podcast, just heard some of the three, three strategies that you as a chief pharmacy officer or leader need to be involved in. We just heard them from Antonio. And uh, we've also talked, obviously, about Amazon and its uh, potential threat and opportunity to what we do. And then obviously, specialty pharmacy, again, a very important area of pharmacy leadership uh, knowledge and content expertise as well. And so in the last couple of minutes, Antonio, what what, what advice do you have to some of our residents uh, listening to this show in terms of how, how do they sort of balance uh, advocacy, getting involved in professional organizations against doing their job? I mean, what, what's what are your thoughts? So I, I always I always recommend, you know, at a bare minimum, regardless of how of how busy you are, you know, cut your checks to support your organizations that are working on your behalf, whether that's APHA, NCPA, ASHP, OPA, OSHP, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, pharmacists, you know, have uh, should have the financial bandwidth to continually support uh, their the, the organizations whose charge is specifically the uh, the protection expansion and representation of the of, of your profession. Uh, that's a no-brainer. But in terms of your actual involvement, I do highly recommend that you are engaged in the process. And it doesn't just have to be through an, an organization, it could be yourself as an individual as well. Um, the easiest way to get run over is to not have your hand on the steering wheel. And uh, I always tell folks, don't wait for somebody else to be your advocate. You will always be the best one. Um, and chart your own path in that regard. Um, you know, I know a lot of the folks that listen to this, Bob, are, are essentially emerging leaders and people that are wondering, you know, where are their places in their career? Um, if I could give any bit of advice that will sound incredibly cheesy, because I was told these things when I was a young kid, you know, chart your own path. Um, do not fit into somebody else's. Right. Um, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm a dad, a Star Wars nerd and a pasta snob who is obsessed <laughs> with pharmacy and drug pricing. Um, there, 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 there's not a major for that. Um, last I checked. And, um, you know, we all have, you know, a pharmacist charge is ultimately to the patient. Um, you know, take that seriously. And if the current system with which you're practicing in, whether that's your current institution or the current, you know, practice, uh, the general practice setting that you're in, 
um, or the just to say the industry that you were in, think more broadly. If you find dysfunction in it, do what you can to change it for the betterment of the service being rendered to that patient. Uh, because when I look at the drug supply chain, I see a hot mess, and um, we don't, we should not exist to tweak it. Uh, it should be our charge to fundamentally change it if we believe it is in fact broken. And so I would challenge uh, your your folks that listen to this and want to be um, you know leaders in in the pharmacy community or in healthcare more generally. Um, when you see something wrong, do something about it. And if there's not a mechanism that already exists to do it, create it. That's great advice. And I really enjoyed talking to you. I've been looking forward to getting you on the show. And uh, uh, thank you again for all of your insight. Most importantly, thank you for your service to our profession. Uh, and most importantly, to the patients that we serve. And it's been a joy to have you on the show and have a great day, Antonio. Bob, thanks for all that you've done and the support you've given over the years as well. You are a, uh, a leader uh, yourself in this, in this small world of pharmacy, but you are a pillar in Ohio State. So bless you for uh, everything you've done in your career. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. And if you found this interview helpful to your own professional development, please do us a favor and share the good news with your colleagues and leave us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts each and every week.